If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. If you were looking for part two of patience and forbearance and humility with and toward one another that we started last Lord's Day morning, then come back tonight at five o'clock. We'd like to invite you to be here with us as we continue to speak about patience and forbearance and humility in the body of Christ in this local church. For this morning, we find ourselves in Psalm 23. Psalm 23. There may not be a more beloved or well-known psalm around the world, and in fact throughout the ages, than is Psalm 23. How many of you have memorized Psalm 23? number of you. number of you. I won't ask you to come up and do that, but um, I suppose that you have done so because it is so melodic, it is so beautiful, it captures our hearts and our minds, and it goes like this in the ESV, a psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In some ways, Psalm 23 is familiar, I say in some ways because, as what we saw a moment ago, it is familiar about sheep and shepherds, but maybe not as familiar as they have sheep and shepherds in ancient Israel, in the ancient Near East, what we call today the Middle East. And if you were with us on the Sunday evening in which we exposited Psalm 22, you found that there were many allusions and even direct references, we might say, to the work of Christ on the cross there in Psalm 22. And if you look at Psalm 23, you might see that there are echoes of the prefiguring of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. In fact, with a thumb in Psalm 23, turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In the beginning of Psalm 23, we hear of God as Israel's shepherd. And of course, because Jesus is God, we see in John chapter 10 in the New Covenant a reference to the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Jesus said to those around Him in His own day, I am the Good Shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, that is my own sheep, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep, referring to Gentile sheep, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, both Jews and Gentiles, one shepherd. And you remember in John 21, when Jesus challenged Peter to, John 21, 16, feed my sheep. This is a powerful metaphor. This is a a great picture of the idea of shepherds and sheep. In fact, even if you don't turn there, in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 20, there's another statement about Jesus as the shepherd. In chapter 13, verse 20, in the benediction of this great book, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, and refers to Him here as the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And if you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a, witnessing, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You see, it's so easy to be able to transfer the idea of Israel as God's sheep to whom he was their shepherd to even the New Testament church and the command for elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then it says this in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, that's our Lord, that's Jesus. When he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is powerful. And because we're new covenant Christians, we live in the New Testament age. When we think of, wherever we find it in our Bibles, Old or New Testament, whenever we think of a shepherd, we need to be thinking of the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus. In fact, turn to Revelation chapter 7. Here again, for our eyes, we read about Jesus as the shepherd lamb. Chapter 7. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold... 
A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. That's emblematic of the New Testament church, the the elders, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, This is John, the author, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And then listen to this, verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's our Lord Jesus. That's the Lamb of God. He's our shepherd. And so when we meditate on Psalm 23 this morning, I want us to see in our mind's eye, God as shepherd In the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, as I read Psalm 23, there are three things that I find here that God is for us, that Jesus is for us. And here's the first one, the first of three. Let's call it God as shepherd and guide of our lives. God as shepherd and guide of our lives of our lives. Look at the first three verses of Psalm 23. Beautiful words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now why does King David use this this picture, this This metaphor of the shepherd and his sheep. Well, of course, as we all know, David as a young boy was a a shepherd. This would have been so real to him, so vivid, that God is something to him as he once was to his little lambs. So this is David in a very picturesque way. And this is also, by the way, a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament. We don't have the time to look, even though you might think so if we look at several passages, to all of them, but we might look at a few of them. Look in the Psalms at Psalm 74.1. Psalm 74.1. This is that repeated theme of God as shepherd. Psalm 74.1. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture. You see, God has a pasture. 
And he is the shepherd of the sheep. And sometimes they don't understand what he's doing, as in here. Look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 52. Then, this is how God is rehearsed in this psalm to be our shepherd. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Psalm 80. Just a couple of psalms away. Verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verse 7. For he is our God. We and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is repeated over and over again in our Bibles. Even the prophets got in on the act. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 10 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. You see, because of their sin and disobedience, Israel was scattered among the nations. And sometimes a major group of them were in exile in a particular land. We know, of course, like, like Egypt and like Babylon. And they were scattered and they were strewn all about. And they were like those sheep uh, that don't know their shepherd. They don't know who to turn to. They don't know where to go. They don't know where to walk. And here... He will keep them, ultimately speaking, prophetically, as a shepherd keeps his flock. How about Ezekiel chapter 34? And we're going to return uh, to this particular passage a time or two. Ezekiel. This is, this is so amazing what God does and how He gives us this great picture of Himself as a shepherd. Look at chapter 34. Chapter 34. Verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. In other words, they should have been feeding the flock, but they are instead feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. They're sick, they're, they're weak, they're injured. You don't bind them up. You don't bring them back. You don't seek them. This is a major indictment. And he says in verse 6, My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, this is what God has to do because they're faithless shepherds in Israel. I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness and I will bring them 
I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. He even goes on and talks about it. This is a it's a very common picture in Israel. And God himself uses that common picture to talk about very, very dire things. The evil of these selfish leaders who are, who are not feeding the flock as they ought to. David knows that. David's been running from Saul, running for his life. We don't know exactly what the context of Psalm 23 is and what David was dealing with, but we know it's a psalm of David and we know that he was running for, for most of the early part of his, of his present and future kingship from Saul, Saul being king, David anointed as king who will rule and reign and Saul doesn't like it and Saul runs after him and even if Saul is not running after him every single day, even the sons of David will themselves try to usurp the throne of their own father and he has to run at times from someone like Absalom. No wonder he says... The Lord is my shepherd. (laughs) I have no other shepherd. I have no one else. And notice here in verses 1 to 3, here are four statements that he makes. Look at the first part of verse 2. He makes. Second part of verse 2. He leads. Verse 3. This shepherd restores. Verse 4. He leads. He makes. He leads. He restores. He leads. David is confident of this shepherd. I mean, there are shepherds in Israel who are faithless and selfish, and they go after that which will satiate their own desires, and God indicts them, and God has to come in and be the shepherd himself to find all of the sheep wherever they are around the world. And David himself, as a young shepherd boy, boy, sees this. He knows the analogy very well. He sees this metaphor. He looks at this picture, and he looks at the Lord, the only one who is faithful, and he says, the Lord, Yahweh, God, is my shepherd. And notice what he says first. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, you saw that image, right? It's not like the the knee-deep alfalfa, right? It's, It's God, through the agency of faithful shepherds, bringing the sheep to the very place for which they have the nourishment they need. God controls it all. Totally controls it all. He makes me lie down in green pastures, David says. God gives us the physical nourishment which we need. I mean, we are, we are in a place, not just Southern California. We are in a city 
in a county, in a state, in a nation, and in the part of the world that we hardly know anything, at least us, at least those who are hearing my voice, of any kind of idea of being famished, right? I mean, we probably leave more on our plates because we simply can't eat it all than most people get in a week's worth, a month's worth, six months' worth of time, right? Our team from Haiti, almost every time they come back, they tell us about the poverty, about the malnourishment. Some of you, you go to Lima, Peru, you might go to some other place around the world, and you see all of this tremendous malnourishment, the, the, the kids with their distended bellies, and, and you can tell that they are looking for a shepherd who will feed them. Here it says, the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, this idea of green pastures, that's that's maybe, and in some places in our Old Testament's emblematic of the idea of God's spiritual nourishment, right? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. If, if David is talking spiritually here, and he certainly is to some degree, if not literally, physically, Deuteronomy 32 Verse 1, this is that song of Moses. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. Notice it's his teaching. Drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Let me tell you, if you are wondering where your next spiritual meal is coming from, since we hardly have to wonder where our next physical meal is coming from, you know exactly where it is, right? Do you avail yourself of the green grass and the dew that causes that grass to grow By eating up God's word. You know, Isaiah in his prophecy in chapter 40 says, The grass grass withers and the flowers fade. Uh, They go off the scene. Uh, They are burned up. They cease to exist. But the word of our God endures forever. It keeps on. The, The grass of the field will blow away. Or it might, in fact, be eaten. But far more than that, spiritually speaking, it is the word of the Lord that endures forever. How much do we say to ourselves, He makes me lie down in the luscious grass of the nourishment that I receive when I read and obey the word of God. I think that's got to be in part what he's driving toward here. And look at the latter part of verse 2. He leads me beside still waters. Oh, this is a great picture of God giving His people the rest and refreshment that they need to keep going on in their journey. And from a spiritual standpoint, again, water is often used, my friends, to speak of the the regenerating power of the Word of God. So maybe if he's talking about God uh, laying him down in green pastures, 
And if that's analogous at all to the idea of the word of the Lord, which is not like that grass, but which endures forever, but which will give you the nourishment you need, how about the waters to go along with that grass? And the water is the washing of the water with the word of God. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34 again. I told you that we'd go back there. Ezekiel 34. This is, this is so wonderful, a picture of our God Ezekiel 34, look at verse 25. This is what our God does. This is the shepherd of Israel. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I will make, Ezekiel 34, 25, I will make with them a covenant of peace. This is with Israel in the future, and we as Gentiles are included in this new covenant. A covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land. Think about a shepherd doing this, folks. Uh, He's going to banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. That's the water. They shall be showers of blessing and the trees of the field shall yield yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations. You see how he's taking it from a literal now and and moving it into the spiritual direction. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. What a shepherd, this God. What a shepherd. And I will provide, he says, verse 29, for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. I see renowned plantations here, and I think of our plentiful land. We're so blessed. We're so blessed. I mean, we we have everything. We have everything at our fingertips. We've got renowned plantations. No longer shall they suffer the reproach of the nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep. Human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. He's your shepherd. He's your sheep. Uh, Excuse me. You are his sheep. He is your shepherd. And look at what Ezekiel 36 says about the water. You ever wondered what this idea of water is? You ever wondered in John chapter 3 when it says, Does Jesus to Nicodemus? I tell you, you have to be born again of water and the Spirit. Well, we get the idea that the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, but what's the water that he's talking about? Look at chapter 36, verse 24. This is what he says. I will take you from the nations. This is a narrative that he keeps on just as he started in the chapter that I read. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
This is what Jesus was referring to with Nicodemus. This is why he even said to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? What things? To be born again. And how are you born again? By the water and the Spirit. By the Holy Spirit regenerating you, causing you to be born again. Like 2 Corinthians 4 that we read in our scripture reading, scripture reading, for the veil to be taken off your eyes so that you see the glorious gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the water of the Word and it is the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. You said it's the water of the Word? Yes. Yes, that's what it means. Why? Because Ephesians chapter 5 says this in verse 26, Christ will sanctify His bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. We have to be washed from our uncleannesses. We're, we're dirty, filthy. We're sheep, right? And sheep are dirty and filthy. You see them walking around all of those rocks? None of them had thongs on. None of them had nice little uh, pajamas. They're dirty. They're filthy. And God needs, as the shepherd of the sheep, to, to take all of our uncleannesses of our life and to wash it away. And He does by the washing of the water with the Word of God. That's why Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, salvation, salvation in Jesus Christ, requires that the shepherd, God Himself, with Christ's cross as the object of our faith, he, he creates in us by the Word of God a kind of washing so that you and I are cleansed from within. And then He plants His Spirit within us so that we are able to do righteous deeds because the Holy Spirit lives and indwells us and He causes us to be born again by that washing of the water with the Word. And no wonder David might capture it this way. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And then he actually says this in verse 3, first part of it. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. And guess what? That word restore, you could actually translate that. He turns me. I'm turned. I'm restored. I'm regenerated. And see, that, that's what happens to us. When we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, our hearts are turned toward God. We are regenerated by His Spirit. He causes us, whereas we weren't following Him at all, we weren't thinking about Him at all, we weren't wanting Him at all, and He regenerates our hearts. For some of you, it was at a moment in time. Moment in time. Regardless of your age, regardless of your time or season in life, you were at once born again. And for some of us, it might take a time that is somewhat imperceptible. It's like what John 3 says. When the Holy Spirit uses His regenerating power, you say, how can you know it? How can you diagram it? How can you discern it? And Jesus says, it's like the wind. So you can't see the wind. But you can see the effects of the wind, right? And in my own life, as an 18-year-old, a life that had 
uncleannesses galore. And at a time when I was reading the gospel, it was like what Peter said, I was born again by the living and abiding word of God. And that word just washed over me and cleansed me from my sin. And the Holy Spirit regenerated my heart and caused me to want to follow the great shepherd. This is, this is what the Lord does. This is salvation. He restores my soul. He renews it. He refreshes it. In fact, the whole point of salvation is that when God, who creates every single human being in His image, in the image of God, the whole point of God carving out among sinful humanity a group that would follow Him for which He would regenerate their hearts, cause them to be washed of their uncleannesses by the washing of the water with the Word. He creates this group, we call it the bride, the church, believers, and He creates such a group so that we could be recreated into the very image of the One who created us in the first place. That's the plan. That's the plan. God regenerates us. He restores our souls. Before, our souls are dead souls. Dead to the life of God. Dead to the things of God. Those those people who are terrorists among us, whether they're in this country or abroad, they, they are dead in their souls and they need the restoring of their souls. And David says, As that soul is restored, and as that regenerating work is happening, and as that grass is consumed, which is the very Word of God, here's what happens in verse 3. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. For God. For His name. For His glory. That's why we do righteous deeds. As Christians, for the first time in our lives, we can actually do righteous deeds. Now, they're not all with 100% accuracy and purity, all righteous every moment of the time. Even in our best deeds, there are taints of our own glory, taints of our own sin. But when He recreates us and when He causes us to be renewed again, to be born again, to be regenerated by the Spirit, the plan and process over time in my sanctification, my holiness, is so that God could progressively renew me into the image of His very creation. In fact, even the conformity of my life to Jesus Christ, His Son. And when that takes time and effort, and what happens in that process is that I start doing righteousness. And I start walking in the paths of righteousness. In fact, this could even be translated Right tracks, right tracks, right paths. And it's all, by the way, for His namesake. It's all for God's glory. Psalm 25.11 says it this way, For your namesake, O Lord, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your namesake. Psalm 31.3, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead me and guide me. It's all for your glory. It's not for my self-aggrandizement. It's not not for that at all. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. God is our shepherd and our guide. He's our guide. How do we apply this? Well, interestingly, in all three of these that I give you, There's an I will. And notice the one here, right at the first part of verse 1. I shall 
not want. You could translate it this way. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. Everything that the shepherd is, he will make sure as that shepherd that you and I shall not want. We're sufficient in him. He gives us what we need. I lack nothing. That's why it says in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, your, your food, uh, your clothing, uh, your shelter, all the things that you need to survive in this world, all the things that you need in order to be continually alive, physically speaking, and of course spiritually, all the things that believers are going to do is seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I shall not want. Man, it sure seems to me like Christians, and I fall in that camp too often more than I want to admit, maybe practically don't always believe that. Maybe we don't live in the category of saying every day of our lives, I lack nothing. Maybe sometimes we say, I seem like I lack everything. What are you doing? I'm hurting, can't you see? I need help, are you listening? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Maybe if we said that more and we attempted to live out that idea more, we would say less, what are you doing? Right? Oh, this is our God. This is our shepherd. And I know... I'm not throwing everything off onto sovereignty. We we have to do our work. We have to plan our way. That's our human responsibility. But what does Proverbs 16 verse 9 say? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I shall not want. Here's the beautiful picture. You don't have to turn there, but John 10 He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Verse 2 says, To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. God is our shepherd and guide of his people. Do you affirm the guiding hand of God in your life? That's that's the Lord Jesus. That's, That's who he is. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. That means he leads out in front of them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I should say, maybe we struggle with knowing the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep because we're not always availing ourselves of his word in order to hear his voice. Maybe so. Maybe if we availed ourselves more of the word of his voice as contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, we might know more of his voice and might say, I lack nothing. Number two, and this will be shorter, I promise. God as guardian and comfort in our lives. God as shepherd and guide of our lives. God as guardian and comfort in our lives. One verse, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mean, we, we don't know exactly what 
David might have been referring to here when he speaks of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But it's interesting, this particular Hebrew word for shadow of death has two words which are joined together to form a combined word, and it could be translated deep darkness. Deep darkness. The shadow of death. Alan Ross tells us that this particular Hebrew word translated shadow of death is used in Amos 5.8 for the deep darkness of the night. Job 24.17 says that the adulterer is familiar with the terrors of thick darkness. Jeremiah uses the term figuratively for distress in chapter 13, verse 16, an extreme danger, chapter 2, verse 16. Job 10.21 uses the expression land of darkness as a label for the world of the dead. The valley of death darkness, like here in Psalm 23, is therefore a vivid depiction of the dangerous places where life is threatened as if death, death casts its shadow over the traveler. Hey, and I think that's right because as the shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd has to lead out. He has to go in front. And what might he find? Robbers? Thieves? Those who are wanting to steal those sheep so that they can fleece those sheep, so that they can take their wool, so that they can eat their remains. And if it's not a human being who wants to do such, then it's also a, a marauding band of animals who want to do so. David had often found, Alan Ross says, himself in such dangerous places, perhaps even retrieving sheep. The places were so dangerous that he might not have gotten out alive if God had not been with him. Even though he walked there, he would fear no harm. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I, I watched that video that we presented earlier, and I put myself into that shepherdess or that shepherd's mindset. And it is getting late, and it is getting dark, and it is windy, and it is cold. And then you come across somebody who wants your life, and more importantly, who wants your sheep. And you stand between them and your sheep. What do you do? It's cold. You have to be fearless. You're hungry. You have to put that aside. Those sheep need you. They depend on you. You are their guardian. You're their guardian. That's why Matthew 1.23 says, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is with us. Jesus says to his own apostles in Matthew 28.20, And I will be with you always, even to the end of of the age. Does that comfort anybody here? I mean, Jesus Christ is personally present with us even now in your darkest hour, in the shadow of the valley of death, even the deep darkness. And maybe, maybe one of his sheep who is walking along that craggy cliff and who is fearful, wants to yelp, wants to bemoan, wants to criticize, wants to question. 
And what does the shepherd have at his disposal? The rod. The rod. You knew I'd get there, didn't you? The rod. He says, you are with me. That's why I fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod comforts me? Yes, because it puts me back on the right path. Sheep do not always have the capability of knowing where they are, what to do, how to stay on the right path, and the shepherd comes with that rod and he unmistakably takes the rod and he uses it for the back of them so that they would stay in line and be safe. It's not the arbitrary rod. It's not the rod of capriciousness where our shepherd God, our Lord Jesus Christ, just takes the rod and says, I think I'm going to whoop you today just because I can. No, he takes that rod and he puts it on our backside because he knows we're out of line. He knows we are lost. He knows we need to be safely sequestered back in the sheepfold and the time is running out. The day is quickly dawning and we are to be back and he does what he must do with the rod to discipline us so that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved, given the rod by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. In fact, if, if you don't get the rod of discipline, you're not one of his sons. Every son, every daughter gets the rod of discipline. At some point, and for some reason, and some of us like me, a whole lot for a long time. For the sake of getting back in line. That's why Psalm 94, 12 and 13 say, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble. Rest from days of trouble. That's what he's doing. You say, okay, I don't like the rod. How about the staff? Okay, the staff is so a sheep can lean on the staff. They can, they can lean on it. They're tired. They're weary. They can lean on the staff. It's a guiding. It's a protection from the enemy of God's people. Great comfort. And it's both. It's the rod and the staff. And, and what's the reader or the singer of, of this psalm? What, what's, what's the point of application? Well, if the first is, I will lack nothing, verse 1. Here it is in verse 4. I will fear no evil. That's his confidence. That's his confidence. That's his application point. If the Lord is my shepherd, then I'm going to lack nothing. I can trust him. And if the Lord's my guardian and my guide, then I'll fear no evil because he's guiding me. He's guarding me. Thirdly and finally, God as provision and blessing for our lives. Provision and blessing for our lives. Look at verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house forever. The house of the Lord. Where, where the Lord dwells. Where He is. And you say, He moves from the shepherd sheep picture to the host guest picture. 
And here's what he says. The Lord is not only your shepherd, the Lord is your host. And you're going to come over to his house. And here's what the Lord of that house does. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who's that? Well, could be any number of enemies. And David had a lot of them. And if David and his mighty men were to go into a host home, then the host would obligate himself as the host to make sure because of the courteousness of the time, because of the culture of the time, the mores of the time, was that the host was in charge of making sure that they had a wonderful meal, they were filled to the plenty, and that there would be others outside who were on the lookout for these enemies. So you're in the house, you know you have enemies, you know they're out after you, you might even think that they know where you are, and they're coming to get you, And maybe you are majorly distracted in eating that meal and drinking that cup, right? And the host is responsible to ensure that you are fully protected. And so he dispatches his sentinels. And they're the ones on the lookout for the enemies while you are inside and the host is serving you the best meal you've ever had, the best food you could eat, the best drink you could have. And that's why he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. They anointed oil in that time because if you were like David as a shepherd and you're out there with your sheep and you go inside, uh, there's an odor, right? Anybody ever been to Europe? You notice the lack of antiperspirant and anti-deodorant? I mean, for them, it's normal. And that's probably not even half as bad as it was in ancient Israel. And somebody comes in with all of his mighty men and they sit down and somebody's going to say, B.O. So, what do you do? You give them water to wash their feet, their stinky, smelly feet, and you put oil on their hair so that they will be refreshed. And I imagine it would be a strong, fragrant potion to relax the body odor in the room. And they're refreshed. And that's what he means. And then he says, my cup overflows. And you know, I know how people say that you cannot drink at all. And I myself am one of those teetotalers, not because I have a religious conviction about it, but because I don't ever want to have anybody think anything about me so I as the strong Christian can make sure that anybody who might be weak among us who says you should drink and you should drink whatever you want and I say I don't want to make anybody stumble so I don't have to so I don't need to but I don't believe that drinking is a sin I believe drunkenness is a sin I believe if you are drunken that's a sin against the Lord but if in that culture at that time in that place and for this purpose There was a cup of wine and it was overflowing. That was a signal of refreshment. That was a signal of enjoyment. That that was an opportunity to see the best banquet that you could ever see. No wonder David says in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy, or the good mercy, shall follow me all the days of my life. Why? Why? Because the shepherd, he, he, he's my shepherd. 
He's my guardian. And he's, he's what I need him to be. And what is that? What is he? He is the provision and blessing for my life. He provides the provision of my food. He provides the provision of my drink. In fact, I'm, I'm protected against the presence of my enemies. I've had my head anointed with oil. My cup overflows with the good wine. And I sit back after such treatment and I say to myself, spiritually speaking, surely the good covenant steadfast love of the Lord will follow me all the days of my life. And the word follow me could actually be translated pursue. Grace, God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, God's goodness pursues me. Isn't that fantastic? It pursues me. I don't always look around trying to find it. It finds me. Goodness and mercy. You know, people think that I and others who who espouse a strong doctrine of the sovereignty of God are, are, are speaking from the housetops about the sovereignty of God as though he's mad about it. No, God's not mad about being sovereign. He loves his sovereignty, and we ought to love his sovereignty too. And what he does in his sovereignty is he protects us from our enemies, and he provides this bountiful meal, and he gives me a cup that overflows, and he's joyfully doing it, and we joyfully receive it. There's no happier person than one who exalts the sovereignty of God, the provision of God. The bounty of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God. We ought to tell everybody around us. When's the last time you told somebody about the mercy of God? When's the last time you said to someone, do you know this God that I serve? He's a God who is my shepherd for which I lack nothing. He's the God who's the guardian for which I will fear no evil, and he's the God who provides such provision and blessing in my life that I do what the end of verse 6 says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm super motivated, uber motivated to be in his presence. Why? Why wouldn't you with that kind of God? Why wouldn't you want to be in the presence of that kind of God? If you aren't telling people about this kind of God, it might very well be because you are seeing a God who isn't there. Because the God who is there, this God is a a shepherd and guide of our lives. He's a guardian and comfort in our lives. He's a provision and blessing for our lives. This is what David is saying in six small verses. Six small verses that has taken me entirely too long to explain. But praise God that we have it. Praise God that I want His personal presence. And I want His personal presence as an individual, right? And I want His personal presence in a corporate dynamic like the church, like this worship service, and in my individual life and in my corporate life, I'm saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall not want. I fear no evil. I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, those are three I wills. Maybe we, should, maybe we should stand. We won't, but maybe we should stand. And everybody says, here's my covenant with the shepherd. 
the shepherd of the sheep. I'm one of those sheep. Here's the covenant. I shall not want. I lack nothing. I will feel, fear no evil, for God is with me. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Individually, my quiet times, my own Bible reading, my own prayer time, and corporately with the saints. I don't miss seasons. I don't miss Sundays. I don't miss these times because I want to be in the house of the Lord. I want to be in His presence. And if that's true, you and I say, thank you, loving Father. And thank you, Chief Shepherd. And thank you, indwelling Spirit. The shepherd and guide of our lives. The guardian and comfort in our lives. And the provision and blessing for our lives. Who would not want to serve this great shepherd? Let's pray together. Father, what a shepherd you are. Jesus, what a great shepherd you are. Holy Spirit, thank you for indwelling us and showing us the great shepherd of the sheep. We covenant with you We respond to you in worship. We say as a result of a sermon like this, I lack nothing. I shall not want. I fear no evil. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You mean that much to me. My shepherd, my guardian, my provision. You are all those things and more to me. May we thank you for being this kind of shepherd God for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.